Hello, everyone, and welcome to this session. My name is Badisha Mamata, and it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome Amy Jeffs. Amy is a writer, a medievalist, a visual artist, a storyteller. Her work uncovers literal and imaginative history. She delves into the pre-modern British landscape, uncovers, rewrites, and represents myths, legends, histories. She explores the etymology and the literal and the imaginative landscape of Britain. Amy Jeffs, over to you. Thank you for having me here today to offer the first keynote for Invisible Dust's Forecast Festival. It's such an honor to share my own thoughts with you now and hear yours in return. My aim with this talk will be to consider the role of fundamental attitude, especially hope, in relation to constructive action. I think this depends on stories and has for a very, very long time. According to a recent review, my latest book, Wild, offers a quote-unquote dreamy environmentalism. I still don't quite know if the writer meant it nicely, um, but it did get me thinking. Whatever my environmentalism is, it's simply the kind I have found I need to be excited about life and active in my efforts to live more sustainably, notwithstanding the threats posed by climate change. It is, I hope, a counterpoint to the apathy, laziness, or active destruction that comes of lack of imagination. I think it might well be rooted in something I envision at a deeply felt, even subconscious level. In this, my field of expertise, the European Middle Ages, provides a dreamy solidarity. There is a whole genre of medieval literature known as the dream vision. Dante's Divine Comedy is a famous example. Another can be found in the Venerable Bede's Latin Historia Ecclesiastica, completed in Northumbria in 731. He tells the story of a man called Drichthelm who dies, briefly, during a terrible illness and finds himself wandering through a place of torture, then of paradise. When he is resuscitated, he shares his vision, joins a community of monks at Melrose and becomes notorious for standing chest deep in the river Tweed, even if he has to break through ice in order to do so. I have seen colder, he says. He becomes active in pursuit of a more hopeful fate. In another very curious example of Old English dream vision literature called The Dream of the Rude, probably composed around the 8th century, the narrator tells us Lo, I want to speak of the choicest of dreams. He then goes on to describe how, in the middle of the night, he saw an apparition of a gem-encrusted, gilded Christian cross. But all at once he begins to discern blood sweating from the cross's right side, and beneath the gold, evidence of ancient injuries. The cross itself then begins to speak. It narrates the drama of Christ's crucifixion from its own perspective, presenting itself as a traditional Germanic warrior retainer who, in a horrible perversion of his usual role, must become the instrument of his Lord's death. The sinful dreamer is cowed, but ultimately enlightened by this vision. Amazingly, the dream of the rude, rude here means cross, is not only preserved in a manuscript dating to around the year 1000, but also in runes on the vertical shaft of an 8th century stone standing cross in Ruthwell, Dumfriesshire. This monument, now protected within the walls of a church, would once have stood tall in the landscape, a beacon of victory for Christians at least, extending its beams above the fields. In yet another medieval poem called Pearl, this time dating to the 14th century and written in Middle English, 
The narrator describes the experience of losing his infant daughter as being like watching a precious pearl slip out of his hand into long grass so that he can no longer find her. But then in his dream, he journeys to the edge of a river in a beautiful celestial landscape. He sees his very own pearl, grown up and clad in white, standing on the opposite bank. In the distance are the walls and towers of a perfect city, the New Jerusalem. She tells him that she has found a home here and that if he can look beyond his grief and terror, it will become his home too. He finds solace in the dream and assurances that will help him carry on living his life in the absence of his beloved daughter. In medieval literature, dreams are a device for exploring ideas that would have helped their original readers not only cope with the tricky business of living, but pursue hopeful action, sometimes at great inconvenience. Dreams in these contexts are not phantasms, but toolkits. In Wild, my most recent book, I was interested in exploring the philosophical relationship between Britain's wild landscapes and early medieval society, while searching caves, reed beds, and barrows for tools we might use today. My text takes as its pulsar the Exeter book. One of only four surviving great compendia of Old English poetry, it is a precious record of the humor and emotional subtlety of pre-conquest culture. If the manuscript had not been given by Leofrich, first bishop of Exeter, to Exeter Cathedral in 1072 and remained protected there ever since, we might have lost it altogether. The Exeter book preserves the imaginative and sometimes obscene Old English riddles. Other poems include tales of the intrepid Fenland hermit uh, St. Guthlac and verses inspired by the Physiologus, a text from the second century CE, originally in Greek, describing animals, birds, mythical beasts, and the moral lessons they provide. Dwelling among the Exeter book riddles are the Old English elegies. They have been dated to as early as the 8th century and seem almost like riddles themselves. Whatever their meaning, they are an immersive evocation of the wilds of northwestern Europe and the psychologies of their narrators. A wonderful example of one of the Exeter book elegies is the seafarer, here newly translated by Dr. George Young at the University of York. The narrator spins alone on a frozen ocean, dreaming of former joys and sending his heart out onto the waves, searching for comfort. He, his hands and feet are fettered by frost and his heart like twists out of his chest, looking for solace. Uh, I'll read a bit in the Old English and then in the modern. Weorfeth wida, eothen shatas, cometh eft to me, yifra und gredig, yileth anfloya, hueteth on whaleweig, reithe unwearnum over holme yelagu. Fothen me hatran sent richtnes dreamus, thonne this deada leaf, lana on londa. And so my spirit roams beyond the heart's restraints, my mind casts off on the swollen sea, eddies freely in the whale's wake, spins to the edges of the earth and returns to me restless and ravenous. Again, the lonely flyer cries, prompting my powerless heart back to the way of the whale, onto the sweep of the sea. You see, God's ecstasies are more intense for me than this dead life we're loaned on land. The seafarer presents exile on the ocean as a metaphor for the exile's despair, even his depression, though in the end he says he finds solace in the Christian promise of salvation. 
In the seafarer, we discover how representations of the wilderness offer us a unique and beautiful insight into the early medieval expression of emotional experience. Wolf and Edoacher is another of the Old English elegies. Its 19 alliterative lines are narrated by a woman, very unusually, who tells us that the hostility of her people has brought about her separation from one she calls Wolf. Among the opening lines is the haunting description, Wolf is on Eye Itchon Othra, fast is that Eiland Fenna Bewarpen. Wolf is on an island, I'm on another. Safe is that island surrounded by fens. The English Fens, one of the first regions populated by migrating Germanic tribes, the future English at the start of the early Middle Ages, were drained in the 18th century. In a pristine state, they were home to otters, foxes, eels, and birds like the bittern, heron, and crane. A medieval imagination might have added giants, bears, demons, wolves, and water monsters. The Exeter book poem of wisdom verses called Maxims II tells us, the giant must dwell in the fen, alone in the land. Likewise, in the Old English epic Beowulf, the monstrous Grendel and his mother occupy underwater caves in the fens beyond Herot, the hall, while in Tales of St. Guthlac, demonic spirits live in the fenland barrow he chooses for his hermitage. As scholar of Old English poetry, Jennifer Neville points out, the dark forces of the fens and other wild places need not be sorted into natural and supernatural. They were all threats to society's survival. She writes, they are not outside of nature, but rather outside of human knowledge and control. Monks living under the auspices of the Irish church had a particular love of taking off to forests, fens, and islands to dwell in prayer and seclusion, fighting spiritual monsters. But in the disciplined communal life of the cloister, men and women could also contemplate scripture and exercise restraint, bringing into balance the volatile elements of the human mind and body, with a view, of course, to salvation. The intellectual and manual skills fostered in the monasteries of Ireland and Northumbria in this period led to the creation of magnificent manuscripts and objects, a tiny portion of which survive to this day. From these secluded communities and their satellite hermits came mind-bendingly crafted books, swirling with the trumpet spirals typical of Celtic metalwork as old as the Iron Age. So here you can see the Lindisfarne Gospels, but you might also see resonances with the designs from the Battersea Shield, which is probably, well, it's definitely prehistoric. Uh, the date's kind of unclear, but it was found in the mud of the Thames near Battersea. Um, and riddling with Germanic-derived interlace of birds and ribbons. And here we have the uh, famous Sutton Hoo gold belt buckle with some 14 or 11, either 11 or 14 serpents intertwining on, it, on the main um, body. A famous example of this kind of manuscript art is found on the pages of the Lindisfarne Gospels made at the turn of the 8th century on Holy Island off the coast of Northumbria. One of the most lavishly decorated sides shows an ornate Greek chi, both the first letter of Christ's name and, it's no coincidence, a cross. It unwinds on the surface of the page, marking the incarnation of Christ. Interlacing forms of highly stylized birds fill the initial. Birds and Lindisfarne have a special relationship. The colonies that still cover the neighboring Farne Islands even feature in the medieval lives of, their, of Lindisfarne's hermit saints, Cuthbert and Bartholomew. On this rocky island in the North Sea, a prayerful Alcatraz, the birds' cries must, in the nesting season around Easter, have veritably drowned out the monks' singing of the psalms. 
nor must the metaphorical potential of these wild neighbors, so visually and verbally rich, have passed by monks trained to read scripture and creation through a complex allegorical lens. In his Etymologies, an encyclopedia widely read in the Middle Ages, Isidore of Seville writes that birds are called Arvis because they do not have set paths, via, but travel by means of pathless, avia, ways. In this, they evoke the wilderness at large. One old English word for the wilderness was wayless, a wayless place. However, in the great initials of the Lindisfarne Gospels, these wild, wandering flocks are brought to order within the word of God, the letters themselves becoming paths for the intertwining birds. They are like the monks themselves, ordered and organized by scripture. If Lindisfarne's monks meditating the art of their most precious gospel book never drew a parallel between the flocks of seabirds beyond the monastery walls and their own communal life within, I'll eat my notes. That being said, nature also heralded discord. When catastrophe struck Lindisfarne, the monks had seen it coming. In 793, a century after the making of the Lindisfarne Gospels, the Anglo-Saxon chronicles tell us that Quote, terrible portents came about over the land of Northumbria and miserably frightened the people. These were immense flashes of lightning and fiery dragons were seen flying in the air. A great famine immediately followed these signs. End quote. What came next shocked Christendom. Quote, and a little after that in the same year, on the 8th of June, the raiding of heathen men miserably devastated God's church in Lindisfarne Island by looting and slaughter. So they were attacked by the Vikings. And it was the first big Viking raid, after which many, many followed. The survivors took St. Cuthbert's coffin and the Lindisfarne Gospels and fled. The shock of such sacrilege on the part of the Vikings was immense. But if the chronicles are true, and let's, say, let's pretend they are, and the monks did, by wild celestial signs, know that attack was imminent, what might they have done differently? The paradisiacal potential of harmony was promised in the created world. Literature describes regions far, far away from the influence of human sin. In the Exeter book poem, The Phoenix, the narrator describes the birds' distant, perfect home as having no rain, nor snow, nor breath of frost, nor scorch of fire, nor falling of hail, nor drizzle of rime, nor heat of the sun, nor incessant cold, nor torrid weather, nor wintry shower. The unusual clemency of this landscape is implicitly attributed to its distance from humanity. Quote, not accessible to the many potentates across the world, it is far removed from evildoers. In short, wild landscapes and wild weather were a mirror on human frailty, confining us to our halls and inside our city walls. The monks of Lindisfarne are likely to believe, as Christians of their time believed, that they were living in the sixth and final age of the world which would witness the apocalypse. This would be portended by storms, and so by their own measure of the world, they had as much reason as we do to fear the implications of great floods and storms. They, the believed proximity of Judgment Day would have brought mortality to the forefront of the imagination. Copying and glorifying the word of God was imperative to bringing as many souls to joyous salvation as possible, and keeping as many as possible out of the clutches of the devil. It was also a process by which, in life, a sense of personal harmony could be maintained. These were the conditions in which the Lindisfarne Gospels were crafted. Beautiful words and wondrous images wrought because of doom, not in spite of it. This was early medieval activism. I am wholly convinced that a quiet, hopeful, 
industrious joy flows from the pages of the Lindisfarne Gospels and the Exeter book. And this brings me back conclusively to dreams. We all know that the simple definition of a dream is a vision we have while sleeping. But it can also be used to describe something wonderful, as when we say, being here today is a dream. In Old English, the word dream meant joy. The modern sleeping vision meaning came later from a separate linguistic root. However, given that we can still use dream to mean something joyful, perhaps some of that older meaning has endured. And likewise, I think this same dream in the sense of joy underpins the exploring, problem-solving, and question-asking of the scientific lab or the artist's studio, building paths into wayless places, striving to bring harmony to discord, having somewhere in our minds a notion of salvation. So I say, let our environmentalism be dreamy, and let those dreams give us the philosophical, hope-handled tools with which to innovate, challenge, and build. Thank you very much. Amy Jeffs, thank you very, very much indeed for that transporting and evocative keynote, which somehow ties together 21st century environmental activism, the medieval sensibility, landscape, history, and craft. Let's get right into it with that ending question from the previous panel, which was about the transformative nature of art. Perhaps art is too big a word because it could encapsulate everything from music to poetry, but does it have transformative power? So I don't know if anyone's read Good Omens, but there's a moment in it when uh, there's, a so there's a child who's the Antichrist, no one realizes, and there's a witch looking for the Antichrist, uh, trying to identify him, and she meets the child and she's confused because she can't see his aura. And the narrator says the reason she couldn't see uh, the Antichrist's aura, this child, is, was for the same reason that people in Trafalgar Square can't see England. And I think we could say something similar about art. I think it's like saying, give an example of how air has changed society. You know, I, I think the way we choose to construct sentences, the imagery we use, the significance of color and form that has been instilled in us from an early age. I mean, I've got a two-year-old daughter and everything she does is about stories and about pictures and about art. And I, I hope that everyone in this room had a similar early childhood. We're built fr from stories and I think that they, and, and from art, and I think that they are fundamental to everything. And what I'm interested in broadly in my research is how these, these gigantic stories um, shape our behavior and our choices. I'm very intrigued by what you point out about part of the medieval mindset and part of its magic being indeed a very 21st century sense of being the last generation or being in the end times. Could you say a little bit more about that? On the one hand, of course, it's human nature to feel that we're the last ones. There was a golden age beforehand. And yet for many young activists today, there is a touch of truth to, to those feelings. Yeah, I think that we can't, I don't want to pretend that they're, they're, we're not already feeling terrifying implications of climate change and there aren't already many deaths occurring around the world as a result of it. Um, I think that what the Middle Ages provides us, obviously we know that they weren't living in the last century or whatever. Um, what I found helpful in, in sort of 
delving into this material was, A, it's beauty. I think it's a beautiful place to go. And it's a good, we need somewhere to put our heads in the face of, of um, terrifying 24-hour <laughs> news. And, uh, and I think that whether or not they were correct in their, uh, their estimations, there was an approach to creativity and to, uh, to active, uh, hopeful action that we can emulate and find inspiration from. And I feel as though anything we can do to instill hope in ourselves, um, for some people it might be the meticulous study of ecology, it might be scientific. For somebody like me, stories and art and beauty are essential for, to just get that, that fire in your belly to keep, to keep on striving and, and being excited about all the things we can still do. Something that's very clear from the slides that you, you showed us just now are that, for, I mean, I really hate using the phrase the medieval period, but uh, pre-modern arts and crafts also involved science and technology, mm -hmm. that there was no hard dividing line between yeah. the literal, the imaginative, the technological, and the artistic. Are we in danger of losing our sense of things being connected? A lot of uh, the discussions are about, okay, can art help science? Can maths yeah, yeah, help yeah. something else? <laughs> yeah, we have ridiculous categories and they're just com completely unhelpful. And um, uh, there's a, a page from a 12th century book uh, that I really, really, like, I catalogued when I was working at the British Library, and it showed a syst the system for reckoning the months. It was a properly boring, when I first looked at it, diagram of, uh, how, of how the kind of Roman month system worked. Um, but it was arranged as, as a set of five roundels, like you get dots on a number five on a gaming die. And, uh, and as I was sort of writing this description of it, I realized that the roundels had some basic decoration on them that actually indicated they were a cosmological diagram. They weren't just roundels. And that the system of the months was being tied into the harmony of the spheres at large, so the medieval worldview of everything being, you know, these, these kind of spheres in constant motion, there being the, uh, the firmament surrounded by the fixed stars, surrounded by the, uh, the heavenly bodies. Um, and that the frame around the outside of this diagram had little uh, foliate ornament at the corners. And it showed first a bud, then a flower, then a bunch of leaves, and then a little dead, sort of desiccated um, bunch of leafy flower things. And that even the border around the edge was showing how the seasons were then in harmony with the system of reckoning the months. And I found it so bloody lovely because it wasn't just a diagram, a technical diagram. It was an expression of, of the beauty of creation and the beauty of its interrelated systems and its ecosystems, to use a modern term. And I thought, we well, might not believe now that, that there are these spheres and that there are fixed stars and heavenly bodies. But I think we have an even richer idea of the interrelation of the created world and of our place in it and of all of these different um, organisms and, and systems that are in constant uh, symbiotic connection. And so, you know, this, this we should be doing. We should be celebrating um, technical understanding at the same time as celebrating beauty. And we should have them all together um, in however way we please and however way we find most engaging.
Should we not also be uh, wary of fake history? We keep talking about how we live in the age of disinformation and misinformation, but you point out in your own work that medieval tellings of the myths of the court of King Arthur are actually referring to a Saxon king. Well, let me not say that. A centuries-old king. So people writing in the medieval period are actually writing about the old period without glossing too much and then serving it back out to medieval audiences. Well, I think... So the court of Arthur is such an interesting one because it was... I think it was understood that the story had, had take, gone off on one a little bit. You know, it was, it was spiralling out of control. There were writers in France, in Germany, in Wales, in England penning their own versions. But this very vivid picture emerges of this king with his round table and the knights that sit in it all, all connected by a bond of brotherly, brotherly love that is so strong that they will die for each other, of this absolute unity between king and his court. And it was such a potent ideal that it's then emulated across the actual courts of, of medieval Europe. And so... I mean, it's actually a really good example of how a piece of literature has very tangibly influenced society in that, you know, the Order of the Garter was founded in direct emulation. So this is, was founded in the reign of Edward III in direct emulation of the Knights of the Round Table. And this fantasy that was actually incredibly powerful politically because it gave Edward III the, the heft to, um, to make war on France and begin the Hundred Years' War. I was reading some of the commentary on the coronation of King Charles, and one of the newspapers said it was like a medieval fantasy created by Disney. <laughs> so not based in history, but based in our imaginative history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Disney films are fascinating for the manuscripts that, I, that open most of the... You know, you have these medieval manuscripts sort of opening and, uh, and dating those manuscripts and, um, and sort of looking at how, what kind of script they've chosen and the designs. It's, it's, um, we are very still very invested in an idea of the middle ages um i wanted to say about the coronation they revealed the westminster the pavement 13th century mosaic style well, it's not actually a mosaic it's called cosmati work but um pavement which has this this design of five roundels on it um same as the this the calendar i was describing the calendar system and so but it also has an a uh, inscription from the 13th century saying that it represents the, the beginning of the world the whole creation and the uh, ultimately the divine sanction of the king of england <laughs> talking to you i feel some of the sort of the magic and the allure of the medieval period but i wanted to take that notion of the idea of enchantment mm -hmm. and apply it to the 21st century. Of course, if one goes to Westminster Abbey or even if one walks through a forest or near a river, you feel a sense of enchantment. Mm -hmm. You don't feel that when you're wandering around the built environment of the middle of town today. What are we losing? And can we get our sense of enchantment back? Mm. Um, well, I, I do feel as though if you went into a pub and spoke to some of the locals and got some of the local legends, that enchantment would begin. There's a, there is a really cool pub in my hometown of Freem, which... What, um, like Weatherspoons near Hoban? Yeah yeah, 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 that one. So where I live, there's a, there's a pub that is... It's very much a local drinker's pub, and wh when I go in, the room falls silent. <laughs> and uh, I went in with my daughter on my shoulders, and she pointed at this very elderly man with hardly any teeth and went, Daddy! Which really broke the, <laughs> broke the ice, and they all <laughs> laughed a lot. But... Um, but uh, that, that's got a, 
that's got a painting on the wall of these two old boys who used to go there all the time, um, standing outside the pub. The pub's shut, and there's a newspaper on the floor that says clock's going back. And basically, they turned up an hour early for the pub to open and then just stood there for an hour. And this was preserved in a painting and is now on the wall of the pub. And it's dated you know, 80, 1985. And they are some... They're dead now, this, these brothers, but everyone in the pub still remembers them. And they're a kind of local, local pair of legendary <laughs> figures um, in a very ordinary, quote-unquote, way. So I think that, for me, inspires a similar kind of enchantment and uh, an investment in, in the uh, in story as Tales of King Arthur. How important is it for you as a writer and artist to memorialize and narrativize the past. The past is happening and we're all living through it all the time anyway. Why should it be important to collect up who we are and what we did? Yeah, I think um, one thing that's important, it's quite easy to become evangelistic. You know, if you study the Middle Ages, you're like, everyone must learn about the Middle Ages. We shall go out and we shall preach the Middle Ages. Obviously, it doesn't need us. The Middle Ages happened. It doesn't give two hoots whether or not we care about it still. But we do need... I think we need as many ways of po as possible of articulating our, who we are and our place in the world and our roles and, and finding the ways of thriving in, you know, as a, a previous speaker already said, you know, the tricky business of being alive and, and, uh, and, and finding that, that excitement in whatever guise. It's just, you know, it's just another wellspring of fascinating stories and... Um, perhaps some lessons. In fact, what comes out at me, apart from the extraordinary beauty of the literature and the craft and the visual art, is how little has changed in human nature. I wondered if you could say a little bit about something which has caused so much trouble politically in recent years, the island mentality, the idea of uh, a fear of invaders, a fear of outsiders, uh, the mystification and vilification of whoever is other or different. Yeah, um, I'm going to try and stay in the Middle Ages because that is where my, my qualifications lie. But um, it's interesting now when we read some of these stories. I mean, in Storyland, my first book, there's, um, I retold the, the tale, which should, should be really widely known, the Albion, which is the kind of early mythical name for Britain, pre-Britain, uh, was supposedly named after Albina, who was the eldest of 30 Syrian sisters exiled by their father, the king of Syria, for um, attempting to kill their husbands and seize the throne, as you do. And, um, and they are exiled in a rudderless boat. They're trapped in the hull of this, of this boat, and they end up, by, thanks to a storm and some really circuitous geography, washing up on this uninhabited island in the Western Ocean. And Albina sort of jumps eagerly down from the ship, seizes a handful of, of stones, and... Um, claims the land for her own, says, I'll be your queen, and I'm going to call it Albion after myself. And the story then continues that they, um, they learn to live off the land. They, they're, re they're real Raymere's types. They, uh, they make snares, they hunt. Um, they become very comfortable and quite fat, and then they become quite lusty. But then they're like, oh, no, there's nobody else here, just my sisters. Um, and so that the strength of their lust kind of reaches down into the bowels of the earth and the devil and his legion detect it and ascend and copulate with the 30 sisters and give birth to um, or engender a race of giants 
And then this race of giants is what the founder of Britain, Brutus, must take on when he, uh, when he so arrives. So like half Syrian, half satanic. Yeah, yeah. Founding, founding exactly. fathers and, and mothers. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, we, I, I mean, personally, when I read that story, I'm like, this is brilliant. And I, imagine, I totally imagine these heroic women, um, the kind of bonkers um, and, and uh, slightly murderous, it's true. But it's a, a brilliant sort of flagship story. And, uh, uh, but in the Middle Ages, it's tapping in, in especially in, within the medieval European literary context, it's, tra it's tapping into the tradition of, um, the literary tradition of how you present the, Sar the Saracen female, quote unquote. And it's obviously really controversial. Um, the, that you find it a lot in crusader literature from Europe, these kind of hot-headed women from the Middle uh, sort East. Sort of orientalist stereotypes exactly. of lusty, avaricious, yeah. uncontrollable yeah, who, women of colour. Who are, uh, they're kind of alluring, <laughs> but they're also dangerous. dangerous. Risky and um, dangerous. Yeah, so I think we... Uh, it's, it's then sort of interesting how... How you, re how you go about retelling these stories. And, but then the, the exciting thing is, is that I don't, I'm hoping that my retelling isn't the only one. Like hopefully by presenting this to a modern audience again, because this is a very obscure text, there will be a plethora of new retellings maybe. I mean, there have been a lot of illustrations I've seen on social media, um, which everyone will bring the, you know, their own backgrounds and, um, and interpretations to the story. And then it sort of gets reclaimed a bit. I like what you say about us all having a right to reinterpret this, this source material. It leads me to my final question for you, Amy, which is obviously about moving forward and final words. Instead of returning to the past, what do we need to rediscover and re-remember? Um, well, I think just, I think that we live in a hypercritical world. It's scary being a maker. Um, you, I think you're constantly worried about, you know, putting something, you sort of cre even as, not, as an art historian, which was my training, I was conscious of, of how, how, say, monsters were represented in the Middle Ages and all kinds of sort of racist and anti-Semitic, this is medieval Europe, obviously, uh, and Christian contexts, um, visual tropes that were incorporated into these portraits. And then when it came to illustrating such things for myself, I, I was thinking, oh gosh, how do I get, how do I not unconsciously tap into these traditions? And I'm sure I got it wrong multiple times. And, and I, I think that you, that can be really scary. But then I thought, well, I'm not, not gonna try illustrating it. I'm not, not gonna write something. Um, but I hope that we, I think that there's a kind of glamour to, to, to being a critic now, that possibly is better would be better held by by celebrating the making and the creating and the putting your head above the parapet, and criticizing through creation rather than through cancellation. If that makes sense. It makes perfect sense, and I think it's a, a great way to end with that endorsement of creativity and bravery and the resistance, not just of censorship, but also self-censorship, mm. even before you get going. So very inspiring. Thank you very Thank much, you. Amy Jeffs. Thank you.